Thank you, Jenny and Tegan, Michelle. Other guys are okay, but I'm thinking about the powerhouse trio here of <laughs> strong women <laughs> leading, so thank you so much. Uh, I didn't mean to diss the rhythm section, but it was just it was great. I don't know if this happens to you uh, ever, um, and maybe, maybe it happens to me because I'm a pastor, but there's this thing uh, that's happened with friends who will say something that they consider maybe irreverent or irreligious, and then they'll apologize to me. Uh, so <laughs> I was getting to know a friend, and, and he said, holy Moses, and then looked at me, he's like, sorry. <laughs> and, and I was like, um, you're forgiven? I don't know. Like, what, what, why are you saying sorry to me? Uh, holy Moses. Uh, and, and so this will happen often. Maybe there'll be, someone will swear, I don't know, something will come up and they'll, oh, Lance is here, sorry about that. And so then I've been letting them know I don't like that when they do that. Uh, stop, stop doing that. And so this is the ongoing joke. And so recently I gave a friend that look when he did that and he, he says, what? You're my only religious friend. It's kind of like, well, why blame me? Uh, I'm getting used to you because you're the only person I know that's religious. And I winced when he said that. Ugh. Religion, religiosity. Can we even say the word without walking into a minefield? I mean, mention it and guards go up. Conversations get shut down. Eyes roll. Uh, and it's the ultimate showstopper and for good religion. Good reason. So to do a little thought experiment here on the screen, religious fill in the blank. What, what, would, you, what would you couple with that word? First thing that comes into your mind, two things that would be religious. Nuts. nuts? Religious nuts? Re- religious zealot? Fundy. Religious fundy? Religious beliefs, religious nut job? Yeah. Religious legalist and religious freedom? Religious freak? Religious prudes? Religious tradition? That's an interesting collection of, <laughs> collection of words. Uh, when I did this with myself, these were, this was the top three that I thought of. Interesting, just, uh, just to kind of observe, uh, oh, those three, extremism, hypocrisy, oppression. Would, would calling someone religious, would that ever be a compliment? Would that ever, you go, oh, thank you. Oh, you see me that way. You do? Thank you. You know, and if, if we were to turn that and we were able to have a conversation together, are you religious? How would you answer? Hell no. Um, no, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Uh, I've been trained, perhaps, to have a relationship with God. It's relationship, not religion. How, how would you answer that? Am I religious? I mean, isn't this what evolution and at least some measure of maturity is all about, is growing out of this stuff? At least putting a little distance between re- cool reason and religiosity. Like a little bit of distance between reason and the crazies. Isn't that, isn't that what maturity's about? Spiritual, okay. Religious. I mean, we know how that goes when religious people get voted into political office. 
or are entrusted with combustible materials or confuse the voice in their head as divinity. We know how that goes. Like how Bono puts it, I often wonder if religion is the enemy of God. It's almost like religion is what happens when the spirit has left the building. Or one of my favorites, Robert Farrar Capon says, there was no religion in Eden, there won't be any in heaven, and in the meantime, Jesus has died and risen to persuade us to knock it all off right now. (laughs) And so given all of this, why even use the word, or um, why this obnoxiously bold title for a sermon series? Thanks for asking, I was hoping you might. I think the... The, uh, and we're going to get to answering that question, but just off the front, want to admit that I'm full-on stealing and lifting the title of a book here by David Dark. Uh, that's his title of a, uh, of a book, which I think is quite excellent and, and uh, really love and will be borrowing from over, over this series. Um, and, and so as we get into this, it would be helpful then just to first state Often when we're talking about religion, we talk about it in two ways. So in the first sense, all, all, kind of all the negative stuff we've just listed. Religion as human system, legalism, manipulation. Uh, what happens when the spirits left the building? Another sense, human uh, uh, religion as healthy tradition, faith practice, or a life lived with room for the transcendent, you might say. And so it's important that we name both, and we'll do that more in a moment. But at its root meaning, you may know the word religion, uh, relegare, it simply means to bind again or to re-tie. It's simply, it's, it's a way of tying together, of making connections. It's all the ways we work to fit and organize our relationships and our resources It's a question of how things have been tied together so far in my life and how might they be tied differently, closer, loosened. Religion names the specific ways we put our lives together and perhaps more urgently the ways we've allowed other people to put our lives together for us. And just to be clear off the top, I'm not making an argument for any of us to start self-identifying as religious or even trying to use the word more. Just that, uh, that we, we see what's going on all the time and that we're always religious. So we're going to talk about that more. But for now, let's just hold that simple definition of religion. To retie, to bind again. And, and so therefore, all the ways we make connection, all the stories we receive and tell and tell ourselves all the promises we make, the bonds we share and the bonds we dissolve, the relationships we form and why we form them and with who we form them. All of that is religious. So to name both sides of religion, we're, gonna, we're starting really broad. And as we go this morning, we're going to uh, focus on the Jesus uh, way here. But we're going to start broad here. Uh, vast, uh, or Nelson's asked, I think, Scott and Julia, okay, come and, come and give us this reading. This is from David Dark's book, uh, This Goes Out, um, and so let's, let's name both parts of, of religion. This goes out. Check. This goes out to those for whom 
Religion is violence backed by divinity. Religion is a backward step in human evolution. Religion kills joy. Religion is why you can't talk to your family. Religion is the state of being hopelessly stuck. Religion is brainwash. Religion is the old relative who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. Religion is a cage around reason. Religion is the thorn in the side of common sense. Religion will not house complexity, mystery, the unknown or contradiction. Religion represents death of the imagination, invention, and seeing yourself in someone else. Religion is the elaborate disguise for fear that gets him a seat at the table of survival. Religion also goes out to those for whom. For this also goes out to those for whom. Religion is peace backed by divinity. Religion is a forward step in human evolution. Religion gives joy. Religion is the call to somehow honor and revere your family. Religion sings songs to the silenced and forgotten. Religion illuminates the invisible threads of cosmic connection. Religion is the moral memory of humankind. Religion is an ancient intelligence summoning us to choose humility over hubris and love over fear. Religion dresses the wounds of alienation, isolation, oppression, desertion, haste, and hierarchy. Religion is the lexicon of mystery. Religion brings the dead back to tell stories. Religion is the library of love and longing, candor and liveliness. Hi, Don. Thanks, you too. Maybe this is why it's so complex just to uh, uh, wade into these waters of religion. And so th the reason we're looking at this stuff is, is for an opportunity to both name the danger and the, the deadness and the despair of religion as well as the possibility of delight. Uh, to talk about the thing that we're always engaged in, certainly on Sunday mornings. I mean, you're here. You're, uh, you're, by the way, you're, you're per at a religious event. Not sure how you feel about that, but here you are. Religious gathering of sorts. Uh, so to talk about the thing that really rarely gets brought up, and that is the, the stuff that you're always tangled up in. Uh, I'm going to argue that everyone is spiritual and religious. And to look closer at the bonds you've made, especially as we come into the fall. What bonds are you wanting to make? What commitments, what attachments, what promises are you going to want to make as you come into this uh, fall season? So let me say a short prayer and we'll get into Romans 12, 1 to 2. We pray for grace to separate wisely and to join wisely uh, the areas of our life that you're calling us to take another look at. Thank you, Jesus, that you are uh, full of fresh starts, full of grace, full of mystery, full of life. And whether we trust you for that in this moment or not, we ask you for a surprise. Surprise of your uh, grace in this moment. Pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, we're going to look at Romans 12 here to start off with. There's a Bible on your chairs. I encourage you to go there together so we can uh, study and learn and read and ingest the Scripture as a community. So Romans 12, 1 to 2. Let's just start with verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, 
In view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Paul, what Paul's doing here is he's urging these young followers of Jesus to take a closer look at their own lives. First, take a closer look. See God's mercy in view of God's mercy, in view of God's infinite kindness and grace, not just in general, but specifically to you. Everything is then about learning how to respond to this gracious God. Learn how to respond to what God is and has been doing. And, and then, and then he, but he makes it a little bit weird here. He's like, yeah, respond to the living God. Yeah, I'd expect that. He said, respond with your bodies. Oh, oh, make the response an embodied one. A body as a living sacrifice. Well, that's weird, Paul, because sacrifices usually mean um, like the thing is done, it's killed, it's not moving. And so a living sacrifice then would mean something is still moving around and, well, uh, doing stuff. And Paul, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the whole point. A living sacrifice that's still animated. I, I like how Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. So one incredibly broad yet possible, still possibly helpful way to define religion could be what you do with your body. So in this way, we are never not speaking and acting upon our religion. We're never not involved in everyday worship. We're always up to it. And, and our sense of what's sacred is always on display in our life. And so what you say and do means this. Show, um, show me your receipts from this last week and your text messages and your gas mileage, and your online browsing history, uh, your iCal, and just to get things started, maybe a transcript of the words that you've spoken aloud in the course of a single day, and then we might be getting to a picture of your religious commitments. Because <laughs> we're never not worshiping. It's just always happening. So then, let's take a moment in the sermon to pause and look at some religious imagery. That's good religion. That's okay. Religion. That's fine. <laughs> We're never not worshiping. There's so many ways to be religious. And even, I like how Phyllis Tickle says it, to say I'm spiritual but not religious is a little like saying I'm human but not flesh and bone. It's like, uh, no, you can't actually separate that. I don't know if you've seen this, uh, the Global spiritual, uh, Spirituality Index. Nelson just showed me this. It, this is ranking the world's most spiritual countries. And surprise, look who's number one. I was shocked to, to see that. And you can look it up. There's more reasons of how they 
came to that number. We're spiritual and religious. Why? Because our religion is the way we make connections. It's where our love goes and flows, which then means your obsession with Game of Thrones, religious. Your very well-curated Instagram feed, religious. Your determination to hold on to that plastic bottle until you found uh, a recycling receptacle, religious. The song you sing when you're alone, religious. Your response to your fellow driver who just cut you off in traffic, religious. The bad ideas you're leaving behind and the new ones you're trying on, religious. So you could put it this way, as David Dark puts it, my religion is the sum of everything I do and leave undone. The words are there, but the actions speak louder. Our religion isn't what we say we believe or even what we think we believe. Neither it is the image, pose, or posture we try to present to others. It's what we do, what we give, what we take, and what we actually bring to our little worlds. Your religion is the shape your love takes in all things. Everyone's religious because everyone's love flows somewhere. And this is what Paul is trying to help these early Christians in Rome trying to understand. Everything's spiritual. Everyone's religious. So the question then becomes, and this is really important, If I am, in fact, religious, and you may not be able to agree there, but if I am, in fact, religious, is my religion what I think it is? And how exactly did I become this kind of religious? And is my religion what I want it to be? Paul continues, verse 2, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, pleasing will. So recalling then that religion is a way of making ties and connections or patterns and that a person's religiosity is never not in play. It names, it patterns, it organizes. Whether we acknowledge that or not, it's the question of how we organize our lives or to put it another way, What story is controlling our lives? People who can't make the world into a story go mad, says Ursula. This is what we're always doing. And so this is another way of understanding religion as a controlling story. Douglas Copeland, what is prayer but a wish for the events in your life to string together to form a story? Something that makes some sense of events you know have meaning. So Romans 12, 2, Paul here is saying, see the patterns, question your connections, examine the story. You're always being conformed to something. Is this the kind of conforming that you want? Even as anti, you know, you're non-conforming, anti-everything as you may be. We're always conforming, being shaped. Is this how you want to be shaped? You're always part of a story, always getting swept up into some kind of drama. Amy and I went to Pacific Theater this week and saw Kim's Convenience, which was so great. I don't know, over 90 minutes of getting swept up in that little corner store. Uh, So good. But that's happening all the time. We're getting swept up and carried away and pulled into all kinds of drama. So you and I are always receiving and telling and living stories. And so then, whatever the content of that script or story that I'm sticking to for dear life, that would be my religion. 
For better or worse, that's what I'm bound to. That's what I'm tying my raft onto. And so then what Paul's asking is, well, see that, question it, critique it for the possibility of conversion to a better story, different, more redeeming story, or to put it a little more strangely, to make less bad religion. So then, do you see how this levels the playing field when it comes to religion? Because the Muslim man who is going to prayers isn't more or less religious than the man with a big piece of pretend cheese on his head going to watch a Green Bay Packers game. Is it good religion? Is it bad religion? True, false, idolatrous, righteous? I mean, opinions may vary. But hit pause long enough to consider the content of our devotion, our lives, our investments to begin to see the question clearly. Too many things get a free pass in our life as just being benign or just kind of like, ah. And we don't see the, the actual religion, the story I am clinging to. So the questions are, what are my controlling stories? Do I like the stories my one life is telling? Do I need to see about changing them? I think that's the invitation from Romans 12, 1 and 2. Always telling my controlling story. And the good news is that at any moment, I can change the story I'm telling. I can step into a new one. And that's what Paul's exhortation is all about. Now, I think I've told some of you this, but years ago when we were, Amy and I were considering getting into church work, we had to go through something called called the Church Planting Assessment Center. Scott and Aubin went through this, and Nelson and Terry went through this, and it's good. Uh, it's, it's important to uh, assess people who might uh, be, become a pastor at some point and starting a new church, so it's all good. It's, very, it's really rigorous and kind of under the microscopy type of experience. Three and a half days, they do personality tests on you, interviews, to give sample sermons, philosophy of ministry, doctrinal kind of quizzing. Um, I mean, a disc profile, all of them. Uh, uh, And uh, tons of references, many references. Interviews with Amy and I where they asked us, I felt like kind of very uncomfortable questions about our marriage and our finances. Uh, It was very, very thorough and frankly, really tiring. And so at the end of it, actually through this whole process, there was this guy named Dr. Jerry. Kind of this elderly guy in the room who at first I didn't know why he was there. Later found out he's a psychologist. And the the assessment center hires him just to kind of overlook the whole process. Dr. Jerry's been taking notes. And near the end, then you meet with Dr. Jerry. And so Amy and I came in the room and met him there and he's sitting at the table and super friendly guy and in front of the table he's got uh he has my whole file and it's probably this thick i kid you not of all the references all the notes i mean when we were in the assessment center we'd be doing group exercises and you'd say something and then all the assessors behind you'd hear scratching on paper why, why, why are you writing notes i just saying stuff what is that what does that scratching mean? Is it uh, just my paranoia was off the chain? Um, and so they've got this whole folder, literally uh, my whole life, references, history, 
and I don't know what else, but it's thick, and it's sitting on the table. And I come in, and uh, Dr. Jerry starts asking a few questions about different files and notes that he, he just wanted to ask further questions about, and could you say more? Oh, yeah, could you say more about this? And we got near to the end. I, I thought it was going okay. And I'm not sure why this happened, but he, he said, is there anything else you'd like us to know? And I don't know if it was the combination of just being tired and exhausted. I don't know if it was because he had these particularly kind eyes, like Jordan Lute level kind eyes, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, like, is that weird to say, Jordan? No, okay, we'll just keep rolling. Um, this, this kindness and that he, he was kind of making space. I don't know if it was, well, I don't know what I was doing. But I immediately launched into saying the worst things about me. I thought, if they're going to know me, they might as well the whole, know the whole thing. And I just started going through my history, my sexual history, my history with finances, string of broken relationships, and as the words are going out, I'm wanting to try and get them back in, and it's too late. And I'm just going off. Yeah, you should also know this about me. And I remember looking over at Amy, and she kind of gives me big eyes like, okay, bud. <laughs> All right, you're really, you're really going for it. <laughs> and uh, so I just I put it all on the table, like, let me, let me shove a few more things in there for you, Dr. Jerry. And I remember the thought, I had the image as I'm talking, thinking at the same time, Lance, you are walking out onto the limb in this moment. Every sentence is a saw. <laughs> like, what? This is, you're done. <laughs> this is it. Your dream of starting a church, right? You are witnessing the end of that dream right now. So I finished the whole thing. And Dr. Jerry's his kind eyes didn't change. He just stayed there. He says, hmm, I want to tell you something. He wrote on my file folder with a Sharpie, it is finished. And he did those lines emphasize it is finished and I, I broke open to know that these words of Jesus which I've heard maybe given, given a few sermons on that these words were spoken over my file that all of the stuff actually the good and the bad as f it, that game is over it's finished. And what particularly was finished, I realized later, was that the majority of my life was about stacking the deck. I mean, walking around with this invisible folder that if ever I meet someone and it gets cracked open, let me just do, okay, you're into that? Okay, Paul, you like that? Okay, let me, I'll pull this stuff, put that up on the top of the deck. Bump into you, okay, right. I'll just read you a bit, all right. You definitely don't want to know about that. Let's just get that way at the back. Yeah, please read my story. I will be known by you. 
such an exhausting game. It is finished. And looking back, I felt like this was straight mercy for me. I'm setting off on this ministry adventure and God's wanting to shut down. Lance, this isn't going to be the game about your ministry where you're shuffling the deck. It is finished. That whole game is done, which then releases my hands to not have to be carrying around this invisible file folder, always shuffling. Hands are freed up to, to uh, be preoccupied with actually making some things. Actually able to receive and to hold and to bless people. Not be consumed with my file. It is finished. So what happened was that the story of Jesus became my controlling story. I'd heard about it, knew about it, but in that moment I trusted it. I trusted it because Dr. Jerry made it visible. There was surface contact on my best and my worst. In that moment, I trusted it. I could be free. It's finished. That applies to me. What are my controlling stories? Do I like the story my one life tells? Do, do I need to see about changing them? Those are good questions to ask as we come into the fall. Which is really what Jesus invited people into. All summer and spring we've been looking at this one line from Jesus. Still looking at it here yet again. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's available. It's accessible. Repent and believe the good news. Step into the better story. And last week we looked at the kingdom of God as, as a river. And if you listen to last week's podcast, this will make more sense. But the river, the river of God is flowing. And we noticed where it's moving to. Revelation 22, this river is moving towards healing the nations. Remember that bit? The river's flowing down this new city. And on either side, there are these 12 trees. And the leaves on those trees are for what? Healing the nations. That's where the story is pointing to. That's where the story goes. Or to to quote Jesus, I'm making all things new. That's what the story is about. All things new. All things restored. All things healed. All things home. All things whole. And so as a church, we've wanted to just be relentless about that will be our controlling story. Joining God in the renewal, in the healing, in the restoration, in the homing in the holding of all things. That is going to be, as much as we drift and veer and forget and grow bored, that will be our controlling story. And then to have as a church learning for that to individually become our controlling story. So really briefly here this morning, I want to look at one invitation into that story. And this is from Matthew 10. We're going to look at this A real quick tour, so if you want to go there uh, with me, we'll do a quick tour of Matthew 10 and a way of participating in this story. And the reason I want to do this is because I think this is... um, this is one of the most primitive early glimpses into the way of Jesus being handed off to a people. Or to put it another way, we could say this is religion according to Jesus. So that's why I think this is interesting. So last week, we ended in Matthew 7. Uh, If you remember that, it was just last week. Uh, We ended in Matthew 7, and Jesus is teaching, and he's wrapping up uh, his teaching, his Sermon on the Mount. 
And then if you were to do just a quick glance of chapters 8 and 9 and ask the question, I wonder what's going on in there. Like after he was teaching, what was Jesus up to? Well, let's, let's have a look. Jesus heals a man with leprosy. He heals many people. He calls more people in discipleship. He calms a storm. Uh, he restores two demon-possessed men. He forgives and heals a paralyzed man. Calls a tax collector. He raises a dead girl and he heals a sick woman. Heals uh, the blind and the mute. So that's what he's been doing over uh, Matthew 8 and 9. So Matthew 7 ends. Jesus teaching. Matthew 8 and 9 we see now Jesus demonstrating what he's just taught. This is what life looks like when the river crashes into and onto the shores of a a human life. Jesus demonstrates that there's actual power. This is real. And uh, chapter 9 ends in this way. Let's look at this together. Chapter 9 ends here. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. This is how chapter 9 ends. After all of this activity, Jesus pauses and he sees people. Not labels. Not tribes. People. He sees people others overlook. He sees them. So let's just start here. Religion, according to Jesus, is rooted in a vision of compassion for people. If you're going to get in on this, if you're going to want to practice religion according to Jesus, you need to understand and receive more of this, a compassionate view for people. It made me think of Joaquin Phoenix's character, Theodore Twombly, in Spike Jones's Her. Sometimes I look at people and I make myself try and feel them as more than just a random person walking by. Seeing people, it starts with a vision to not label to not quickly categorize, oh, I know, I've already gotten to the bottom of this person just by the jeans they're wearing. Totally understand and know. Or those words, I know, oh, they're quoting those thinkers. They're one of them. Mm. Jordan Peterson, oh, mm. I see. Label, categorizing, sorting. Invitation is to a compassionate gaze towards people. Beth Moore says, Christianity that has lost Jesus is left with a cross to crucify people on and a tomb full of dead relationships sealed by a heart of stone. Beth comes out swinging there. (laughs) A Christianity without Jesus, kind of a dead form of religion without his compassion at the center of it, that's kind of what you're left with. So then, as we start in Matthew 10, we see Jesus do something he hasn't done before. We haven't seen him do this before. He gathers up his apprentices, and I wonder if at this moment they're like, yes, Sermon on the Mount, Volume 2. Can't wait. This is going to be so good. It's going to be even better than the first sermon. He is going to be dropping serious wisdom again. Volume 2 is coming out, and it's not what they get. Watch what they get. Verse 1 in chapter 10. Jesus calls his 
12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. This is basic but powerful. Jesus calls his disciples to himself plus gave them authority. This is a simple combination, but this simple combination is everything. It's presence plus power. He gives them authority. It's all borrowed authority, but he gives authority to them to announce and to demonstrate life in the kingdom. It's power, a power that comes from being in his presence, being his friend, being in communion with him. We've talked about this over this last year. Apprenticing Jesus means reorganizing your life around three goals. Being with him, becoming like him, and doing what he does. And notice what this authority is for. Gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. Who is this authority for? Those who need release? From darkness, those who are trapped, those who are in bondage, those who are under weights of oppression, those who need their wounds bound up and healed. That's what the whole movement's for. And then in verse 5, after he, the, the text lists who was in this group. And then in verse 5 it says, they were sent out with the following instructions. Okay, I want to know what the instructions are here because this sounds scary. I thought we were going to get together for more teaching. Apparently not. Okay, so what are we doing? Do not go among Gentiles or any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you proclaim this message. So first there's specific instructions. And then Jesus gives them a specific message. Make sure you have the message straight. This is the message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Like, okay, that's the message, that's it? Like, it's so short. Would you want to elaborate? Like, that's way shorter than the message this pastor is certainly giving. Um, That's it. The message is the kingdom has come near. The kingdom is here. The river is at hand. The life and power of God is on on hand. The heavens are open. God is available and accessible here and now. The river is here. The story is one of an interactive and immersive experience in the life of God. That's the message I want you to take out. I thought this week, I wonder if that was the message I was trained with in seminary. I wonder if that's the message that you and I feel that we're entrusted with when we go about our days. That the kingdom of God is God's available, accessible. Is this the story, my controlling story? Is this the story that I've received and the one that I'm telling? And so these apprentices have been given authority to proclaim a message, but not just that. Verse 8. So let's back up. As you proclaim, this, verse 7, this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Verse 8, heal. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, Freely you've received, freely give. As I was reading this text slowly this week, that word just was uh, kind of landed with a thud. You've got this message. Now I'm authorizing you, verse 8. Heal. Heal. The renewal of all things brought to a person's body, their emotions and mind. 
The renewal of all things brought to how their loves are ordered. Restoration given to the helpless and the harassed. Heal. In verse 8, he says, freely you have received, now freely give. This is how it works. This is the economy of the kingdom. This is the currency. This is the current. It's how it flows. It's all grace. The river has flooded into my life. It's splashed up on my dusty banks. And with it has come healing and forgiveness and purpose and, and a reason to get out of, the bed, out of the bed in the morning. That's actually the case. You've received all of that for free in Christ. And the response is, yeah, but I have nothing to give. I don't, I don't know what to give. I have nothing to give. Two responses to that. Number one, false. <laughs> Not true. <laughs> Remember and recollect all that you've received. All of this that you've been given is to be shared. This table isn't just for you, it's to be shared. What, anything you gain from this sermon this morning is not just for me or for you, it's to be shared. The, the hello and the hug you may have received this morning, a sense of belonging in this community, is not just for you, it's to be shared. That bonus in your last paycheck is meant to be shared, given away. So I have nothing to give. Ah, it's just straight false. I've... I have nothing to give. Second response would be, it's true. It <laughs> also is true. I, I and you don't have healing powers. Like on my own, I can't do it. I have insufficient funds for healing broken things and broken people and broken systems. And so there's a desperation here. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't have the currency. So what then? It drives me back to verse 1. Go to Jesus receive authority being called to him and to receive authority and if that wasn't tenuous or risky enough verse 9 do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep oh man no funding I got a little bit of backup cash that's just financially imprudent why is this in there? Why are these the instructions? Because God's power is made perfect in weakness. Because the people that God is wanting to work with walk with a limp and apparently without a wallet. But seriously, why not? Why not this, at least some funding? And I'm not, I'm not sure exactly why, but surely this is a word for the church in the West who is all wallet and no limp, all sufficiency and no dependency, all human power and not enough weakness. So apprenticeship to Jesus apparently means being commissioned with empty pockets. Verse 11 keeps going. Whenever you enter a town or village, search there, stay until you're welcomed in. What is, what's going going on here he's forming apprentices to be guests rather than hosts Jesus is intentionally putting these people on the other on the underside of life on the dependent side on the weaker side Jesus is creating a movement that does not swagger he's forming apprentices who arrive with empty pockets and empty hands 
Empty hands are available then to hold and to bless and to touch and to receive. And he goes on with more instructions of how not to force it. I'll leave that for you to read. But it's interesting. If we were to sum it up, it's like, don't push the river. Don't try and force things on people. Look for who God's working with. I mean, how much damage has been done in religion by people trying to push the river. And then he ends in verse 16 to 24. He says, expect this. Expect to be arrested. Expect being hated. Expect being persecuted and misunderstood. If you're going to be my followers, you're going to be treated like I was. It's just it's good to have that expectation up in front. Not everyone is going to want the river. Not everyone who's in power is going to be dis- want to be dislodged from the river. Some are going to want to control it, section it off, be in charge of it. Expect to pay a price. So, as we close here, quick summary. You know our vision, church, is to join God in the renewal of all things. And you know, if you've been around in this last year, we've been seeking to do that by practicing the way of Jesus. And in the text that we've just quickly scanned, I think there's an invitation for us as a community. First, it's to remember who the restoration, the healing, the renewal of all things is for. It's for the helpless and harassed. And so when I even say those words, who pops into mind? As unlikely as they may be, the helpless and harassed, that's who this gospel is for and that's who we are for. The second is, how might we join God in, the renewal of this, in, in, in this renewal work? I think there's a few invitations here. The first is compassionate vision. The second is presence and power. To know, the pre- to be in the presence of Jesus and to receive the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit to a greater degree. And you may be saying, Lance, this is starting to sound kind of charismatic. Do you mean it in that way? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But not in that way. Like whatever the new wineskin is for this church, to be able to receive with empty pockets, the power of God, for the power of God to be made perfect, not with swagger or hype, but brokenness and weakness. I'm, in, I'm interested in that, a movement of the Holy Spirit in and through this congregation, the river really filling and flooding our cracks, and an invitation of cor- courageous weakness. Just to risk empty pockets a little bit more. I think just, I don't know how exactly, but to be in this neighborhood as guests a little more, a little more empty-handed in the way we come into a conversation. And I've got a lot to learn about this. Courageous weakness, and the last is costly devotion. I think we're tired of something that's easy or doesn't cost much, and Jesus warns us, "You you can't be my apprentice and expect to fit in. You're going to have to embrace weirdness. So in the coming weeks, we're going to broaden the scope of this work of renewal, looking at spiritual, cultural, um, and social renewal. Broaden this vision of the renewal of all things. But today, this is an invitation for us just to consider what's your religion? What's, what's your controlling story? And second, 
is to consider this story. This is the most primitive form of the, the way of Jesus we, we see here. The first time he's entrusting it to people. This is religion that isn't about dividing up people, but binding up wounds. This is religion according to Jesus, which is all about participating in the healing of the world. And I realized uh, there's, I do something weird about my friends who are nurses and doctors. I was doing this talking with my parents about my friend Tim Gutteridge, who's a doctor at the U of A. I like bragging on them. I just like so impressive what they do. Their work is awesome. I, do, I name drop my friend Lindsay Underhill all the time. Be like, oh, my friend Lindsay's a nurse at that hospital. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I know. Tanisa, my friends also. Yeah, I, this, this, high, it just, uh, this may be weird, but this high estimation of nurses and doctors. I think of Lindsay, why? Because I'm confident of her religion. The way she inhabits her world, the way she prays for people, the way she seeks health and healing for people. The, well, the, the way, as a nurse, it's so clear her vocation is healing. That's just how she moves in the world. And I think about like uh, that mindset of, of confidence moving into the world. Of like, yeah, I'm, I'm part of God's healing work in the world. That's why I'm here as an engineer. As a designer, as a teacher, the real, that's my controlling story. Like, however God wants to use me, I've got empty pockets, totally insufficient funds. I haven't, I like, the power of God stuff, no idea. I don't think I even believe in it. It's okay. More of us to receive that controlling story and to find out what, what would happen as us, we're sent out into this fall. So let's close with one last quote. Richard Foster, in our day, heaven and earth are on tiptoe waiting for the emerging of a spirit-led, spirit-empowered people. All of creation watches expectantly for the springing up of a dis- disciplined, freely gathered martyr people who know in this life and the life, who know in this life, the life and power of the kingdom of God. It's happened before. It can happen again. Can't wait to see what will happen in this fall with all of us. And so... Uh, let's, um, let's have the band come.